This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Ngunnawal country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And Phil Khoury, friend of this podcast, of course, and political editor of the Australian Financial Review, will be along shortly after a torrid budget week in Canberra. This is the final sitting week of this parliament and Scott Morrison's expected to call an election, of course, by the end of next week. Sometime could be today, could be the end of next week, we don't know. But before Phil comes to join us, all his budget scoops in hand, let's just recap a little, PK. The headline of the Treasurer's budget delivered on Tuesday night was cash splash, or in the words of the Treasurer himself, a cost of living budget. There was $8.9 billion in direct giveaways. Six million people will get a cheque for $250. Ten million people will get a tax relief in uh, tax time of an extra $420. And then, of course, there's the cut to the price of petrol. Now, most interpreted that, this whole cash splash thing, as a typical pre-election budget with short-term sweeteners to get the voters in a happy mood. Labor deriding it as a plan for government re-election, not a plan for the nation. Scott Morrison, though, says it's government doing what it should to help alleviate pressures on Australians. Last night, we could give Australians a shield, whether they be pensioners or hard-working families, uh, those who are paying for prescription medicines, um, those filling up the car at the Bowser. Um, we gave them a shield against those cost-of-living uh, increases. So a shield, not just an empty handout, PK. The fuel excise was a cut of 22 cents a litre, effective immediately. And boy, did they mean it when they said immediately, I'm here to say that I was a very early recipient of the Treasurer's generosity. I had to fill up the tank last night. Wasn't expecting cheaper petrol to have come through yet. But they just adjusted the Bowser and I paid, wait for it, $1.99.9 cents a litre. People were actually shouting out with glee at the pump speed. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, the, the price has come down. I kid you not. So um, I think that tells us that that measure at least is a winner for now. I love that Frank Kelly has just given us a sort of eyewitness account of people jumping up and down at the petrol stations. They really were. Look, I've been in Canberra broadcasting all week, of course, Fran, for Budget Week, and I have not been near my car, although thank you to all the lovely um, cab drivers in Canberra who I'm sure have been filling up as well, who've helped me out to get around. I haven't filled up my car, but I do know that the petrol issue is seriously the number one talking point in the country. So do I think that it's solved? the government's problems. I think it helps. I don't think it solves them, though. Mm. Um, but I do think it helps. I think this budget, um, the shield and the dramatic language used by the Prime Minister, whatever it is, whenever you give people a cheque or cheaper petrol or things that give, you know, help them materially in their everyday lives rather than lofty sort of policy promises of the future, but things that they feel immediately like this, particularly with the, the next check that's coming in April, of course it has a material impact on how people feel, not only that they're being listened to, but that, that they can feel something, you know, in their hands and, and in their pay pay packet, not pay packet, 
because that's a wages story, but in their bank account rather that, that they notice. I believe, though, that the issues that are facing the coalition are more deep-rooted than that and that quick fixes just like that. Uh, uh, I don't think they substantially change a narrative, especially with what we're seeing, which is that uh, Labor is not going to create any contest around these measures. So, you know, you, you vote for Labor, you still get the measures, right? You don't all of a sudden lose that money in your bank account or all of a sudden your petrol goes up because Labor doesn't want to go through with this. So there's not really a risk. Risk is important in elections. You and I know that, right? Like setting up a risk. Scott Morrison did it beautifully if you're into politics as a sort of sport or an art, and now people are getting angry when I'm talking like this, but he did. He did it because he made it scary and to vote for Labor at the last election. It is not scary to vote for Labor at this stage for what they offer because you get the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't, I think, you know, I, I don't think the sort of excitement of uh, people going woohoo at the fuel station leads to the Prime Minister getting a whopping win. Yeah, I think, well, especially since the uh, woohoo price cut is only going to last, it's only factored in for six months anyway, and I think people will understand that. Um, however, it was really interesting to me to see that direct connection. PK, when this podcast was in very early days, very early on, remember we spoke to Kerry O'Brien after a budget, <gasps> and he talked about, you know, yes, it's got a big bounce in this budget, but wait, there's always a few smelly eggs. There's always a few smelly <laughs> eggs in the budget. Remember that? You really I liked do. it. I do. I love a smelly um, egg. So we talked, when we did our sort of post-budget podcast yesterday, uh, I asked you about where the cuts were, where the savings were, and there weren't really any that were laid out. Like they're normally a spending, you know, spends and saves laid out. That didn't happen. But, of course, that doesn't mean there aren't any cuts and there aren't. that doesn't mean everybody is happy. Uh, one of the cuts that seems to be coming to light is a cut to the climate budget, including cuts over time to the key agencies of ARENA and CEFC, our two major innovators and funders of new technologies are copying a gradual cut, it would seem, according to the budget papers. How does that make any sense when the government's whole mantra for cutting emissions is technology, not taxes? It's rather curious. I think that's right, uh, Fran, um, a little odd. And there was another smelly egg too, uh, Fran, and one that I think um, was, well, not entirely surprising, but perhaps disappointing for the arts community. I mean, we know how smashed the arts community has been from COVID uh, and they they were very vocal during the whole the sort of two years of on, on again, off again, lockdown sort of periods about what they felt was a lack of support. Um, and now there's there's you know an announcement in the budget when you go through the papers the winding up of the of the rise for instance that means that funding for the arts and cultural development will fall from 159 million in 21 22 to just two million uh, a year over the forward estimate Screen Australia's funding is also being reduced dramatically from 39 million to the last budget to 11 million annually uh, regional arts to film and television spendings Why? falling the why, PK? I mean, you can understand the rise funding cutting out because all the, you know, special temporary targeted pandemic funding has been wound back and the government's making a thing of that. But why would they be cutting Screen Australia's funding or regional arts funding? Is What do they think? There's no votes in the arts? I 
I absolutely probably think they think there's no votes in the arts, right? Uh, or that, you know, artists are sort of, I don't know, lefties or some sort of weird misconception. I want to say on that, though, that if you look at the the, the rich history of the Liberal Party, particularly in some of those, um, you know, more leafy seats, I think about people like Ted Bailey, who doesn't miss uh, an arts event. He mm. was Liberal Premier, Victorian Liberal Premier, Jeff Kennett. I am a Victorian, so I'm obviously referring to people in my own sort of area uh, at a Bronwyn state level. Bishop never misses the opening of a musical, the, I can tell you, you that. Um, well, who wants to miss an opening of a musical? You'd be crazy. But, uh, you know, th- there has always been also a connection from some parts of the Liberal Party with the arts, uh, perhaps not the grungy arts, but the arts. And uh, I do think that it's it's kind of <laughs> disappointing to see that there's, there's this move. It's small but it means a lot to a struggling sector. So it's kind of like a bit of, you know, chipping away that's gone on. Again, back to your smelly eggs, which I'm glad you've raised and, and we're borrowing again from Kerry O'Brien. There's still, and, and not to insult both of those areas and there are others, there still weren't heaps of smelly eggs, though, Fran, mm. on balance. And that's because there's an election looming. I mean, the Prime Minister can go to the Governor-General at any point now. Um, he'll choose his timing. Um, lots of debate about when that might be. But ultimately, he doesn't He doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want any eggs to be s- s- hanging around him. And there's already a few other eggs which we're about to get to, yeah. which are perhaps hanging around for him. Yes, hanging, around, hanging over his head. And uh, we will come back to the budget talk with Phil Curry. But... This budget week, PK, which is, as I mentioned already, the final sitting week of this parliament, was kicked off with condolence motions in the House and the Senate for Kimberley Kitching. Uh, In those motions, there was a lot of emotion, obviously, on the floor of the Senate in particular, but some of our own side backing up concerns about the treatment of her and others in the parliament. More decency, kindness afforded to each other must become the norm. Or who will we attract to this place? The best of the best, like Kimberly, Jane, Elizabeth Kitching, or mediocre representation. That was Labor Senator Helen Polly speaking about the late Senator Kimberly Kitching. But Fran, in a surprising and I think quite spectacular turn of events, it was a female Liberal Senator this week who turned the spotlight away from Labor. And just literally two hours after the Treasurer delivered his speech, delivered this rebuke of the Prime Minister. He is adept at running with the foxes and hunting with the hounds, lacking the moral compass and having no conscience. His actions conflict with his portrayal as a man of faith. He has used his so-called faith as a marketing advantage. In my public life, I have met ruthless people. Morrison tops the list, followed closely by Hawke. Morrison is not fit to be Prime Minister. I just, whoa, right when I heard that, you know, I think it was 3.45am playing it on my iPhone, I thought, is this real or is this a dream? Just to set the scene for people, the part of, I mean, timing is everything in politics, right? And this was delivered the same night as the budget. So after Josh Frydenberg has done this thing and everyone was focused on the budget, Senator Ferravanti Wells stood up in the Senate and said that. I mean, that, (laughs) talk about... um, Guerrilla warfare, you know, really. I mean, what it meant was that the next day when you and everyone else basically was interviewing either the Treasurer or the the Prime Minister, the the questions about the budget were there, but so were the questions was, is the Prime Minister a bully? Prime Minister, are you a bully? I mean, that was, you know, really hardcore. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was hardcore. And unfortunately for the Prime Minister, he's now had several others who've joined in and said similar things, right? So just to give you the sort of sense of the diversity of the people, Senator Pauline Hanson, One Nation leader, stood up in the Senate and said that he was a bully. And then that was backed up. And these aren't, you know, she said this previously, I believe, too. But um, Jackie Lambie from, you know, different, different person in the Senate saying the same thing. The problem for the Prime Minister, in my view, is they can say this is sour grapes, for instance, from Senator Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, right? And there are some sour grapes. She's clearly very annoyed by the pre-selection row going on in New South Wales well, and how she's, she's been she's treated. Lost. I mean, she's lost the pre-selection effectively. She will not get back in, so she's going to be out. So, of yes. course, so she's she, disappointed, she, to use the Prime Minister's word. She's pretty upset. Uh, but then, just like we did with Kimberly Kitching um, and the allegations there, we have to make an assessment or ask questions to try and get to the bottom of is this just the rough and tumble of politics and people being aggrieved and, and um, being angry or is there you know is there substance to this right and it's not an easy thing to determine but I think it's very damaging for the Prime Minister that on the record these people who really represent very different constituencies um, if you look at One Nation leader Pauline Hanson she's obviously um, you know the, the right of politics she talks to people who are kind of uh, disenfranchised, angry, and then we've got uh, Jackie Lambie in Tasmania where the government is in trouble saying that he's a bully. I don't think that's particularly helpful to him. However way the, the government tries to spin it, that they're all, they've got an axe to grind and an agenda. What do you think, Fran? Do you think this is kind of doing massive damage to him? Well, I think, as I say, the damage it's doing in the short term is it's taking the focus away from the budget. That's the first bit of damage. The second damage is it's feeding into a narrative, if you like, an impression that's been building around this Prime Minister for some time. I mean, you know, it kicked off probably uh, a few years ago when Julia Banks, former Liberal MP, re resigned. She talked about bullying in the party room and in her book that she released last year, she described Scott Morrison as like, quote, menacing and controlling wallpaper. Um, and, and, and there's sort of been, you know, chapters added to this story all the time since then, uh, you know, the mishandling originally of the allegations against Brittany Higgins, those sorts of things, hasn't been good time for, for Scott Morrison around his uh, attitudes to women, his treatment of women, and now this, again, from his own side, from Conchetta Fieravanti Wells. So I think that's damaging for him, plays right into, you know, Labor's trying to be, trying to sort of stoke this story and this, this idea of the Prime Minister for a while too, quietly. So I do think it is dangerous, actually, for Scott Morrison. Having said that, the latest polling, the latest news poll, for instance, which is breaking down different demographics, I think the polls are signifying that the drop in support from women for Scott Morrison that was evident uh, earlier last year has basically disappeared again. That gap is not there so much. So, you know, if the polls are right, uh, the women of Australia who might be voting conservative side of politics are not put off Scott Morrison at this time, but wait and see. Yeah, well, it's always wait and see, isn't it? But but an interesting point that Catherine Murphy from The Guardian, and she often comes on this podcast, made on our own breakfast this morning, so I'm attributing it to her. It's not my idea, but it's an interesting one, is that, you know, she says that, that she's travelled in Tasmania, for instance, and she does think there's a lot of anger towards the Prime Minister, but she also says there's a sense of almost feeling sorry for him, that there's, you know, the, the sense of the pile on, on, yeah. on him. I think that's really interesting. Uh, if, if it sounds like a sort of cacophony of people 
people saying this thing about him if if that kind of backfires. I don't know about that theory, but it's a really interesting idea that um, people might think, hang on a minute, he's had a hard time mm. managing a pandemic. You know, calm down. Mm. Leave the guy alone. Yeah. Well, returning if we can, to the main story this week. Of course, the pre-election cash splash. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. (laughs) Phil Curry, political editor of the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to the party, Brent. Thanks, Patricia. Thanks, Fran. Hey, Phil, there you are in the nerve centre. How's Mm. the budget cell going? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison? Oh, look, well, look, I'm, it's hard to tell, Frank, because they haven't had any real clean air. You know, sort of Connie Wells dropped a big bomb on them on, on budget night and that took up almost as much airspace yesterday as the budget. Um, and, you know, we had Warney's shindig last night down at the MCG and, you know, the whole country was watching that. So I, I think, yeah, the, yeah, the, the message, that they're, they're trying to sell the thing's been severely hamstrung, but... From what I hear, from what they tell me, that it's gone down very well with the focus groups they do on budget night. And I must say, I was driving home from work last night and I did a double take as I went past my local shell because the fuel price had a one in front of it. Yeah. Phil, I did, I, Phil I did better than that. I, yeah. uh, you well, weren't you here when car. I told my story. I had to <laughs> no. fill up last night, not thinking mm. that the cut would be through. And it was yeah. $1.99.9 a litre yeah. and people were cheering at the pumps. Exactly. So <laughs> don't underestimate whether it's worked. And look, Fran, my, my measure and... Uh, uh, and, and it's not my measure, but it is a, a measure that good budgets disappear very quickly. And this one was pretty much out of puff by lunchtime, mm. wasn't it, Patricia? Mm-hmm. I mean, Patricia's here for the week. And, you know, I think Labor sort of moved on to other things about a third of the way through question time. And it was it was one of those... Cla- mind, I, I hate sort of going back to the Howard days all the time, but we keep finding ourselves there with Scott Morrison. But, you know, that line he used to use, you hate this thing so much you vote, you're going to vote for it. And that was, pre- <laughs> that was pretty much... You know, Labor came out yesterday and just ripped this thing from head to toe you know, this craven, you know, pre-election sort of bribe and then voted for it, couldn't vote for it quick enough. So um, I suspect they wanted it gone too. Yeah, though, um, mm. you know, Labor people were pretty happy too yesterday. They had, a, as someone, one of them said to me, we've certainly got a bit of a spring in our step. So they don't oh, yeah. think this budget was good enough to, mm. you know, well, to give Scott to Morrison the boost. The yeah, yeah that, mm. that's what they think. Well, they, well, that you know, that that's obvious. I mean, I think you know, this government's in a world in a world of pain. Um, and we were talking about your show yesterday, Patricia. Remember the, the, the similarity, similarities with O one are, are there. You know, we've got a budget ten points behind a news poll, cost of living pressures, petrol, uh, an unpopular prime minister, and um, you know how did exactly the same in O one. Everyone, I, I went and looked at the story I wrote yesterday, actually. Um, 20-something years ago, but everyone <laughs> over 60, I think, got 300 bucks. Um, and, uh, and and that's when he did his fuel. He only cut excise by one and a half cents and he froze the... Um uh, froze the, the indexation of it. But that, it, yeah, it didn't put him back in front, but it put him back in the game. And remember, he won the Aston by-election two months later, and that was a very pivotal moment. Mm. But Morrison has nothing like the time that Howard had to sort of swing mm. things. You know, Howard didn't go into an election until November that year. You know, Scott Morrison's got to pull the trigger next week. So that's probably why you know, he, they went the nuclear option on excise and halved it and so forth. But it's a, it's, a, it's a confidence game, politics, Fran, and you know, oh, you know, if if the polls don't move, I think they'll be just they'll be bereft. Yeah. Um, but but if it's even if it's a margin of error shift in news poll and others on Monday, one or two points that'll you know that'll give them a bit of hope. Yeah, well, they need yeah, mm. that's right. It's a confidence yeah. game. They yeah. need that kind of ability to go out and sell it and mm. feel like that there's something that they're fighting for. Look, that word 
three words actually, cost of living. Um, mm. I think Fran pointed out in yesterday's podcast, we did a little sneaky extra yesterday. Yeah. If you haven't heard it, go listen to that too. It appeared eight times in Josh Frydenberg's mm. speech, but the budget offered only temporary measures, mm. right? It's like quick, quick little sugar hits mm. and then, you know, nothing to see again. Are people going to see through that? I mean, for instance, that tax relief for the lower and middle income mm. earners, that ends in a year anyway. It does, yeah. Oh, look, they will, Patricia. I mean, people do. And, and look, there are a lot of people who just can't stand the Prime Minister just going to take the money and not vote for him anyway. They'll see it for what it is. But Well, they get it either, either party. Yeah, that's right. But those people saying whoopee at the fuel station last night, and it was, what we've got to remember, we all sit here and we obsess about everything in politics. We follow every every twist and turn. But out there, most people are just switching on to the fact there's going to be an election mm. and are just starting to sit up and pay attention and, and you know, look at the alternatives. Now, yes, Scott Morrison is really unpopular. Um, there's just no doubt about that. It's just sort of, but, but Anthony Albanese is really unknown. And so they're just starting to take a look at things now. Um, you know, you know self-interest always you know, comes into play. So yeah, there will be the people who don't like him who won't, won't change their minds, but it might be enough. I was talking to some truckies. Uh, guy from the trucking industry on budget night, and they were they were absolutely over the moon at the excise cut because it's not just about their household budget. This is their business inputs. You know, this is this is the whole the guys who run trucking trucking fleets and stuff. This is this is a big. This goes beyond just you know hip pocket politics. This is going goes to you know your cost of your groceries and stuff like that, freight costs. So. We'll know when we know, you know. We we always try to sort of predict these things, but I, I'm not very good at that, so I won't. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I can just tell you what the paradigms are. You yes. know, <laughs> and it's going to the government's trying to set up this narrative, of course, that you know we always manage the economy mm. better. You can't trust mm. Labor with the economy. You've got the Prime Minister out now, you know, describing um, Anthony Albanese as a vacant space, mm. his small target strategy, which is pretty cheeky, I think, given the Prime Minister hmm. last election actually virtually had no policies, and Just that was cuts. the yeah. narrative there, except hmm. for tax cuts. Um, so he's, you know, trying to pressure Anthony Albanese to come out with some of his hmm. costings and things, but the election's not been called yet. The pressure will come on Labor. I think from those who have been out and about in the electorate doing um, focus group testing, I think that is an issue for Anthony Albanese. You know, are people hmm. going to... They don't like Scott Morrison. I think that's coming clearly through in those groups. But, you know, are they going to trust this guy to not stuff up the economy? So that's a bit hmm. of the equation going on. But, Phil, on that count, the government did show a bit of restraint in spending yes. in this budget. We're saying it's a cash splash. But actually they banked some of the extra cash that yeah. they got from resources and lower welfare payments. Hmm. Um, but I think the big thing in the in the budget, the big forecast, and the big thing in voters' minds, as you were just saying, how are people feeling, it's about wages. We haven't had wages growth. We've got employment down to 4%. Everyone thought that would be forcing wages growth by now. It's still not. The forecasts are that wages will grow. But for a lot of people, they're just not feeling it. No, that's right. And, and it's just, it's, it, this is a phenomenon that's really occurred since the end of the GFC, Fran, that the old factors that used to drive wage growth aren't working anymore. I remember John Howard pointed this out in a speech a couple of years ago. You know, we've got every ingredient for high wages at the moment. We've got super low unemployment, zero migration, you know, massive demand for workers, yet, um, you know, just they're just not growing very fast. I mean, and even the forecasts in the budget show next financial year, you know, wage growth will creep above the inflation rate just by a quarter of a percent and then 1% after that. So there will be a wage increase in real terms, but not massive. Um, so, you know, at least you can say wages will be above inflation. But, you know, I don't know. It's just got everyone confused. I, I, I actually think, you know, Labor says they'll fix it up and they'll do things like, um, you know, secure work and 
get rid of labour hire and things like that. that that'll help at the edges, but it's not going to go to the guts of the issue. Mm. And I, and I, you know, I hate to say it, and it's not just me because I work at the financial review, but you're really going <laughs> to have to look at industrial relations. And one of the one of the one of the big problems is is is, and everyone agrees it's the problem is the death of enterprise bargaining. It doesn't, you know, it, um, you know, we, we've got to go back to the Keating era IR mm. uh, reforms that actually did generate wage increases and productivity increases and stuff. And we have this. You know, we had a mutual agreement a year ago, uh, a year and a half ago, when Scott Morrison actually did try and bring Bob Hawke and have a consensus process of unions and employers. Ran out of fears pretty quickly. It mm. did, but I mean, but 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 everyone, the five topics that were on the table were there by mutual agreement yes. that all were broken and needed to be fixed. Now. They got, they didn't do too bad. They got a sort of reasonable they consensus. Close. They got enough to get a bill together, but it was actually Labor who came in, and I won't say who, but walked, I remember in February this year, was it last year, sorry, said, we're just going to oppose the whole bill because we need a fight because we've been rendered obsolete by COVID. So even though there's bits of this bill we agree with, we're going to you know, evo- you know, basically set up this whole work choices type scare campaign and oppose the lot because we need to get back in the game. So Yeah, but that attempt- wasn't the whole story, wasn't it? The government did try and sneak some things oh, through. There was, look, look, there was, look, friend, no one's ever going to agree on this stuff. This is how difficult it is because the business groups, they were fighting amongst themselves. You know, the master builders exactly, went to war, yeah, that's my recollection. war with the BCA, you remember? Mm. But, you know, when, when Albo got up at our business summit the other week and said, I'll be Bob Hawke, I'll bring all the groups together, that uh, good, <laughs> but you're going to have the same problems as, yeah. as, and the same you know, and, and, and the art of doing this is not getting the groups together, it's brokering a consensus. So I, I you know, I, I wish him well if he's elected to do it, but you know, and and I hope the coalition, if they're in opposition, is a little bit more sort of constructive. constructive. But yeah. it's a but really if you're gonna to get to the heart of the wages problem, there, there's a lot of things you can do, but you can't ignore IR, especially yeah. we've got to get workplace bargaining. Uh, back to where it was. We've got to, I mean, Paul Keating will be the first person to tell you that yeah. you know, Julia Gillard should not have done what she did when she unravelled work choices. She went back pre-Keating instead of going to Keating. Mm. Now, the Prime Minister has got into a bit of trouble this week talking about housing affordability mm. and the lack of cost of living relief for renters in this budget because mm. that's a huge issue, mm. like the skyrocketing yeah, rents. It's terrible. Here he was on the Today Show um, on Tuesday. Nothing for rent relief, though. Why not? This is about Australians getting into homes. Best way to support people who are renting a house is to help them buy a house. I'm not talking about yeah, home ownership here. I'm talking about rental relief for the thousands of millions of people who are renting. And yeah. I think for a lot of places, like in regional um, Australia, rents have gone up about 18 to 20%. Yeah, I know, but that's my point. People who are buying houses are renters and ensuring that more renters can buy their own home and get the security of home ownership. This is one of the key focuses of this budget and was one of the key pledges that I've delivered on since the last election. Okay, Phil. Whoops. That wasn't Whoops. helpful, was it? W- it wasn't as bad as Jay Hockey saying, get a loan from your parents. But, um, well, that's <laughs> also or Paul Keating saying, go get a job. <laughs> poor people don't drive. Or, <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah, look, I would have said that yeah, it's up to the state governments to help with rent relief. We can't pay for anything. But, um, yeah, no. That, that's that put it in the category. If I had my time again, I'd say that different. I suspect. Yeah, it's a and I'm, look. Housing is just I, I, it, nothing makes me angrier personally than what's happening with housing. Um, you know, my own house sort of you know almost doubled in value during COVID, and I took no joy from that whatsoever because I had no intention of selling that house. Mm. All I could think of was my kids. You know, who are teenagers, and I just thought, God, you know, what hope is there? And just, just the greed in the housing market is just crazy. Like. We've turned housing from a necessity to an investment vehicle, yes. and 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 the thing that 
you know, and, and again, I just spoke about the need to grapple with IR. We've got to have a look at the tax treatment of housing. We've got to have a look at capital gains tax for investors again. I mean... Well, yeah, we they tried to I look know, at it last election and, and, and it, everyone's scared it, it, now. Yeah, but, you know, it's all, it's all in the timing, Patricia. Imagine if you're, if you're wafting that around now, I reckon you'd probably get a bit of uh, a more sympathetic hearing. Um, I mean, they, they, Labor took CGT negative gearing to 2016 election and nearly won when the housing market was out of control. Last time there was a flattening in Melbourne and Brisbane and everyone was there's this sort of what I called a greed-fueled panic um, and they got caned for it. But, you know, most economists will tell you capital gains for investors are not a good thing in terms of house prices. And I remember I had a conversation with Nick Minchin when the Howard government lost in 07. I went down to see Nick. He was packing up his office. He was the finance minister. And I'll never forget, he said, you know, the worst thing we've done, our worst legacy is what we've done to house prices. He said, we created this perfect storm in an era of um, low inflation, low interest rates, high wage growth. We bought in things like the first homeowner's bonus, the first homeowner's grant, and we halved the CGT rate for investors. And he said, we've created a perfect storm. Mm. And he was right. And they've gone out of control ever since. And I think we're now at a point where there's a social imperative has to outweigh, you know, you know, if you want a negatively gear one home, I think that's fine, but... Um, but not you know, five, not 10, not 20. No, but it's more I the agree. capital gains. And we're seeing now, I know we're seeing it in Canberra, tons of houses are suddenly going on the market. I think there's this sort of FOMO that that, that these mad prices aren't going to last and it, people are cashing out. And it's not just downsizers, it's investors who got in and now they're cashing out on these huge prices. So... Um, and just yeah. back to renters, I mean, you yeah, know, well, it's just a tin ear. A lot yeah. of people are never. Yeah. You can make the deposit five percent if they have done with their special scheme mm. for fifty thousand or two yeah. percent. You can make a one percent. Some people are never going to be able to get together, you know, four thousand, mm. eight thousand, no. sixteen thousand dollars in their lifetime. It's no way. Crazy. Now, we can't finish mm. talking to you without um, talking about the fact that there's an election that's going to be called any day now. Mm. The opposition. Anthony Albanese will deliver his budget reply speech on Thursday night after Zelensky mm -hmm. addresses the joint sitting of Parliament via video link. So, you know, I don't know how much that will disrupt the potential um, coverage that Labor might get. Now, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, hmm. Phil. Often we just have to let people know there'll be details. You should look at the ABC and listen hmm. to Aaron Breakfast and read Phil or whatever. Like, do whatever <laughs> you want to find out the details of it. But tell me about the optics of it. What's Labor trying to do here? Well, it, it's a good question, Patricia, because as you say, it's Thursday morning and, 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 and normally when they give these speeches on Thursday night, those of us in the media get them a couple of hours in advance so we can get them in our, in our bulletins and our newspapers and stuff um, you know, for production purposes and we've been told this year that's not going to happen because Anthony Albanese doesn't want to be seen to be politicking. They think the federal government's budget was so craven in terms of its please vote for me that they don't want to sort of lower themselves to that level. So it's just going to have a big policy announcement in it which you know, they'll give us but they don't want to have any of the politics around it. So I don't know, there's a little bit of purity going on. Mm, <laughs> does it just suggest you they don't have much to say? No, I think it's got a pretty good policy announcement, Fran, but I think Albo is sort of saying we want to be seen as this sort of long-term visionary thing rather than, um, you know, just trying to get over the, over the finish line, but, you know, as, as the budget was aimed to, you know, as the yeah. budget aimed to do with the government. So, um, oh, look, I, I, th I think they're overthinking things. I really do. Just, you know, <laughs> just seriously. Everyone knows there's an election next weekend. They want to win it and let's not pretend. But bottom know, line yeah. is this is his chance. This is effectively the start of yeah. kickoff of his campaign, it's, just like yeah. the budget was for Scott Morrison. Yeah, and, well, yeah, you he's know. playing that down, though, Fran. And he said at his press conference on Monday, this is not my alternative budget. This is not my election pitch. This is just going to be a policy announcement. They actually are trying to play down the import of this, which is strange, I mm. would have thought, because it's one of the rare occasions the opposition leader gets the microphone. 
microphone, gets to hold the microphone, mm. has live live coverage on TV, you know, can deliver a, a, a very, you know, can deliver their message, their vision and stuff. And as we said earlier in, in this podcast, people are just starting to switch on out there now and there might be a lot of people watching tonight. So, um, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to judge it before we've seen it or read it, but, um, you know, it's, it's a bit strange, their philosophy, I must Bef- say. Before I let you go, mm. Phil, what will this election be about in a paragraph, like you're writing a lead uh, on a newspaper story. Sadly, character assassination. Well, yeah, our, last, our last two elections have been about policy, uh, mainly labour policy, um, you know, negative gearing, capital gains, franking credits, um, you know, all sorts of the climate change. Childcare, cancer. All that stuff. This election, Labor has made it, the, the, the tip of their spear is Scott Morrison's character, um, you know, and... Uh, and because Labor itself is a pretty small target, it's going to come back at Albo's character, you know, the Prime Minister saying he's a vacuum or whatever he said, and I think it's already really, really nasty, and, I, you know, everyone's calling everyone a bully and God knows what, and I just think it's going to be one of the most unedifying campaigns I've probably covered in 20 years because no-one's talking about policy. It's all it's all tearing each other down personally. Great. Oh. Can't wait for that. Mm-hmm. Phil. But, well, that's, 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 all, that's all the indicators, and, uh, it's, it's not, it's, and, and that'll switch voters off. Oh, it sure will. Quick smart. Yeah. Oh, people are over it. But when's the last time we had a policy in the last three weeks? And when it's, it's just about, you know, character. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's character or yeah. he's, he's just some money, no it, sort of reform yeah. or idea You're a fraud, you're it. a hypocrite, you're a liar. You're yeah. A, yeah, so anyway. Oh, gosh. Fasten your seatbelts. Oh, look, I'm ready, uh, sort of. <laughs> Try and be nice. Be kind, people. Phil, yeah. I'll be kind to you. Uh, back at you, Pat. All right. Yeah. Thanks for you coming too, on Fran. the podcast. Good Thanks, to have you back, Fran. Good to see, talk again, too. Good, mate. See you. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. And uh, I think the last question time we record this on a Thursday morning is going to be happening in Parliament House. But ours will continue throughout the campaign. And this question comes from Melanie Reid, who says, Hi, Fran and PK. Regarding hung parliaments, I think the Australian public hear a lot of fearful predictions from the major parties about the risk of ineffectiveness and then we don't hear many factual accounts of how a hung parliament actually performs. What do you make of a hung parliament's effectiveness and if we have one after the upcoming election, how would you imagine it working? Thanks and love your work, says Melanie. Fran, what do you reckon? Well, we don't have much to go on federally. I mean, the Gillard government, the last term was a hung parliament. Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott went with Julia Gillard to form government and it was a hung parliament. The, you're, you're right, Melanie, the major parties always put a scare campaign about this. Don't risk, you know, a hung parliament. Don't risk voting independent because what you need is a major party in there with the numbers to actually get things done. But if you look at, I mean... There's a lot of people who still look back at that last Gillard government and say, oh, it was terrible, you know, Oakshot and Windsor, you know, held the government to ransom, held things up. I mean, actually, it delivered a few things. There was the water trigger, I think, delivered by Tony Windsor. He spent a lot of time and energy going up and down the Murray, really getting, you know, deep into that issue and came up with the water trigger. There was a lot of money for uh, renewables, particularly up in some of, um, well, their seats, for instance, their regional seats, but in regional Australia sort of started that that movement. There was also, of course, Julia Gillard got the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse up, the NDIS uh, got up, the Gonski Review got up, all of that done with the assistance um, of independence, but ultimately, you know, Tony Abbott's opposition came on board with those things too. But I, I, I personally liked watching the impact on policy 
of two thoughtful politicians in Oakshot and Windsor. And if we get a hung parliament this time, we don't know if we will, but on the numbers, you could see it's a potentially a very likely thing. Um, you know, what would that mean? Well, it would mean that there'd be a lot more emphasis and pressure on the government to deliver on climate policy, government of whichever shade, um, because all of these independents have, well, most of them have as their central tenets, climate action and a national integrity commission. So I think you would see a lot of pressure on whoever wants to form government, certainly in the early negotiating stage with these independents, um, some promises on those two fronts. Not a bad thing in my view. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing about a hung parliament is, you know, part of that question is we hear a lot of negative things about it from the major parties. Well, of course, they want a majority. It's easier to manage a majority. Uh, of course they want a majority. Um, you know, you don't have to negotiate all the time and, and it's a lot less of a headache because generally, uh, you know, parties kind of fall into line with the policy and there's sort of the executive approach. But, Fran, you're right when you have a hung parliament, it might be messier and more complicated and, you know, journalists have a whole lot more people to sort of call. Uh, but, it, 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 you know, you can get more dynamic outcomes, even though there can be sort of also limitations uh, in terms of just how fast you can get stuff done, to be clear, right? <laughs> because, you know, there's always a lot more riding on the negotiating process. So uh, let's see. I personally, and I look, I, I think we'll probably get a clear majority, to be honest. But, you know, I could be, you could be replaying that and mocking me in about two months' time or whatever. So I don't care if you do. I just think it's likely we're, you know, one side or the other will fall over the line anyway. That's it for The Party Room this week. Thank you so much for listening. And, of course, by the time we meet next week, PK, is every chance we'll be in election mode. And if you're all interested in the election, which I know you are, because otherwise why would you be here with us? Um, and if you want some more coverage of the election, the ABC is about to launch a new daily show that will cover the major stories right throughout this campaign. It's called Australia Votes, and it'll be available on the Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts, starting, kicking off on Friday, April the 1st. Oh, Fran, how many sleeps to the election? We're not quite sure, but it's looming. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.